somehow you slide we would never get around to to mentioning wars, depression, big business government, bigotry. Your world is dying, Dad, and it's burying itself in the dry rot of imperialism and colonialism. When the moral fiber of the United States and the economy collapses under the pressure of competitive coexistence, it will be your responsibility, comrades, to purge the minds of the reactionary Americans. The anarchist seeks only ruin and destruction, and he rides a tidal wave of terror. I guess we're anarchists. You know, if the cops come, the cops come. You're listening to the Pages Against the Machine podcast. Salam, halatun chatore, chatore didash. What's up, everybody? This is Amir, and this is the Pages Against the Machine podcast. That was me dropping some Persian, basically saying, for those of you polyglots interested, hello, how are you? How are you, dude? So yeah. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for checking out the podcast. I'm really grateful that you took the initiative. It means a lot. I put a lot of work into this. And so I'm grateful that somebody actually cares. So this podcast episode is going to be about, drumroll please, election 2020. And I will say that I am expecting this podcast episode to be very divisive. I posted a few days ago, a thing on Paige's Instagram, um, it was the power of now, and I subverted it to say, if I remember correctly, hey, white leftists, it's cool that you see the power of not voting in this election, but many of us minorities can't afford the luxury of maintaining ideological purity and self-righteousness. That was the overall idea. And I know this, you know, voting and elections and that type of thing, extremely controversial on the left. A lot of people don't want to vote. They don't believe in the system. And I understand that sentiment. I totally understand that sentiment. And it's something that I'm going to explain and explore my take and my opinion on the whole voting conundrum, particularly as it relates to election 2020. So I'm recording this podcast here in Western Pennsylvania. That's right. I left California for a period of time for a variety of reasons to go back to Appalachia, to where I grew up in Western PA, to an economically dead and depressed and dying post-steel town, uh, you know, every town, Rust Belt, USA. And I was really excited to come home, obviously, and see the fall foliage and be in the woods as somebody who just grew up in the woods and completely surrounded by forests and trees. I took it for granted until I lived basically in the Los Angeles area, which is a desert with water um, piped in from the Owens River Valley. And so it's really nice to be back. It's very calming and everything. And I've been doing a lot of driving. Fortunately, my brother has been kind enough to allow me to use his car. And I've been cruising all over. And I'm going to report that things aren't looking so good. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's pretty easy. Every house has some sort of Trump paraphernalia. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Not every house, but it's strange if I am on a street that doesn't have a few Trump signs in the yards. I've seen Trump flags. I've seen signs everywhere, both handmade signs and the ones that I'm assuming they get from the Trump campaign office. It's so much Trump paraphernalia that I'm seeing that it's arguably probably his most successful business venture of all time. His brand now 
particularly in the Rust Belt, is just, I mean, it's up there. Like, it is, it was to be expected. I was very much expecting it, but it's on a level that it's hard to fathom. You know, I do see some Biden signs occasionally, but they pale in comparison to the amount of Trump shit that I see everywhere. And so that's an indication that isn't good. (laughs) You would think that Trump botching the pandemic and a lot of other stuff would disconnect Trump and disaffect Trump's base of white working class Rust Belt voters. But it seems that he still has a lot of that base behind him. And there's a variety of reasons why, which I'd like to get into in a separate podcast, because I I feel that given, you know, my experience growing up here and knowing a lot of these type of people and having seen this, this part of the country, you know, continually decimated and falling apart as I grew older before I moved to California a decade ago, I think that I, I have an understanding to an extent of their psychology because I, I know the culture very well and why he's able to continually maintain their support. I mean, he has so much support here in Western Pennsylvania that there's a barn out near one of my favorite places in the state, Ohio Powell State Park. If you haven't been, absolutely go. It's beautiful. I have secret spots there that I used to spend a lot of time in. And I went out to visit it and spend some time there because it had been well over a decade since I've been. And there is a barn in particular that has painted on it, Trump is all that is man. And it's the stupidest stupidest thing I've ever seen I so it's common in Appalachia to still see barns with advertisements uh, painted on them there's a bunch that say chew mail pouch variety of tobacco and those type of things but this one barn had that painted on it in large letters Trump is all that is man and I you know it's an eye roll it's fucking stupid but it, it makes a lot of sense when you understand the culture of Western Pennsylvania and Appalachia. We here live in a culture that is very traditional in its notion of masculinity, that masculinity is never apologizing, it's standing tough, it's standing proud, it's being violent, it's being prejudiced, it's being in control, it's been being combative, it's in being tough, it's in all of those type of things. And so a lot of people here in this culture see that and see Donald Trump embodying that and they see him as somehow masculine, as dumb as that is. But it's a very real thing to confront. So Donald Trump has such an unreal amount of support behind him from white working class voters in Appalachia. I'm out here on the ground and it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. He's a cultural hero to these people. And I'd love to do a podcast and I'm working on it about speaking to Trump voters, particularly in the Rust Belt, who I have a theory are leftists and they just don't know it yet. But 
that's for a later episode. So I'm going to stick to the topic now. In 2016, my brother was continually telling me, Amir, Trump is going to win. And I was like, nah, nah, man, like, he's not going to win. He's not going to win. America's racist is what he continually kept saying. Amir, America's racist. And, you know, I knew America's racist. Like, I never, you know, I grew up in an area that was very openly racist, but I had been living in the bubble of Southern California for the first time, surrounded by, you know, multiculturalism and just a variety of races, all seemingly, you know, on the surface getting along and people weren't calling me San N-word or terrorist and all that type of stuff or, you know, thinking my name was all weird. So I was a little bit removed and I was thinking by and large, culturally, the racism isn't so much out on, you know, on the average American citizen in white America that they are going to support Donald Trump. And I was completely mistaken. You know, my brother, he totally called it. He knew it was going to happen. My brother is not white passing like I am. My brother is far more dark complected. And he works in an industry in forestry and arboriculture that is very redneck. I don't really know how else to explain it other than that. And so he's plugged in to the the opinions, the feelings, the all of that type of stuff of white working class Rust Belt voters. And he's telling me still, Amir, Trump is going to win. And now I believe he might win. I believe he's definitely a contender. I think that the future of what this country does or doesn't look like is going to hinge primarily on the outcome of this election. And I believe that a lot of you already know this and accept that. It's not that it's a radically new notion or I'm covering new ground or anything, but I believe, given the amount of support that I see here, that Donald Trump still has a path towards victory. And I believe that it's a very real threat to all of us, particularly if you're listening to this podcast, to you, and me, and that we must reconsider whether or not we participate in this election and electoral politics. We face an existential crisis and just endless crisis after crisis right now in America. And so as we dive into this, let's first start talking about everybody listening to this podcast's favorite economic system, Capitalism. Capitalism. Its nature is crisis. One after the next. It thrives on crises. So, it's like that by design. Because, well, there isn't really much of a design in that it's just unregulated free markets just continually existing, going up, going down, crashing, going left, going right, whatever. The nature of capitalism is crisis. It's instability. It's a contradiction of capitalism. Whether you're a communist, an anarchist, a socialist, and maybe a social democrat, you understand that that is something that we on the left pretty much all have in common is that we, un- we see the complete inadequacies and failures of capitalism, particularly neoliberalism, which is a particularly 
virulent strain that has taken over and slowly dismantled and destroyed the United States and Great Britain to an extent since the 1980s. And the, the irony is that the majority of Americans, well, they've never heard of it. They don't know what it is or what it means. You know, it's like living in Soviet Russia and never having heard the word communism. It's bizarre. And it's definitely the elephant in the room. So what is neoliberalism? Well, it can be summed up very briefly as deregulation and dismantling of the state and state services and state oversight and control. But it's far more than that. It's honestly a philosophical belief, both economically and socially, that free markets rather than government are far better at solving people's problems and creating prosperity and opportunity than the government, as well as free markets being a truer form of democracy. And it stems from originally the Australian School of Economics, uh, von Mises, von Hayek, and onto what is called collectively the, the Chicago School of Economics, people such as Milton Friedman, who really, really advocated that the governments take their hands off of the free market, that government intervention and government stabilization and, and social welfare programs and redistribution of the wealth and the whole New Deal, which falls under Keynesian economics, were a completely unfair and detrimental set of economic policies and beliefs that truly hinder society and the individual and freedom and liberty. Basically, neoliberalism is libertarianism's main economic platform, okay? And, and these type of economics became established with Ronald Reagan in the United States and then Margaret Thatcher in, you know, in England, in, in the United Kingdom back in the late 70s, early 80s. And there was a big movement to move away from the policies of the New Deal and all of, you know, Keynesian economics, which whether you're opponent of capitalism or not, very obviously created far less economic inequality and far more prosperity for the average citizen than what we have now in this neoliberal state. And so I would argue one of the biggest problems that we face in the United States and predominantly the West in the world because this, this neoliberalism has been basically the new post-millennium consensus, you know, the post-war consensus after World War II was Keynesian economics. Well, post-collapse of the Soviet Union in the new millennium, it's very obviously deregulation, free markets, and neoliberalism. And given how it has totally crushed large portions of the United States, getting rid of all the steel industry, creating the Rust Belt, and continually shipping manufacturing jobs away, I would argue that for the majority of American citizens, it's public enemy number one, particularly, as I had mentioned, everyone living in the Rust Belt and post-manufacturing America. And I would argue that the biggest failure of Bernie Sanders, as great as he was in turning a lot of Americans on to the fact that, hey, we don't have left in this country. We'd be a lot cooler if we did. He ultimately failed in bringing 
any sort of explanation to how we got to the 99% versus the 1%. He never truly was able to expand beyond that obscure dichotomy. And because of that, people don't really understand how we got to this place where there is a 1% versus a 99% and why our healthcare system is entirely market-based in this country and why the majority of political power has been transferred into the financial world. Obviously, an American candidate isn't going to be on the stage bashing capitalism outright, but if he had articulated and added nuance to the conversation that, okay, the reason why everything sucks is because, well, we have this type of capitalism that doesn't really seem like it works for everybody in the same way that the New Deal Keynesian economics appeared to. And obviously, Bernie Sanders was pushed out. He isn't the nominee, but that conversation doesn't exist. So that allows Trump to continue his maintain his narrative and frame everything that the actual problem is minorities, it's immigrants, it's all of the fascist bullshit, and it's not actually the economic system. Had he inserted that line of thinking in the discourse and the narrative, I think that would have served our cause and our movements to a far greater capacity because that would be that would have been injected in the mainstream consciousness and we could continue to expand upon that. But that's not the case. So Trump and the far right have complete control over the narrative and how to frame the causation of the problems and the reason why everything sucks so bad anymore in the United States for the majority of the working class. So anyway, cruising around Western Pennsylvania, it's not looking so good. Look, I'm pretty damn sure that Donald Trump is a strong contender and is likely to win again in 2020. You read corporate news or anything, they're still all about the polls, the polls, the polls. And I'm just like, seriously? You believe that polling means anything? You got your ass kicked in the last election when practically every poll said Donald Trump didn't even stand a chance and Hillary Clinton was the presumptive winner. So this misplaced faith in polling, I just don't understand. I, it's just wishful thinking. The Democrats, they want things to be a certain way, and they're not. And they tell these stories to themselves of what Americans want and what's good for working class America, and they're just completely out of touch with the reality. The reality is we want health care. The reality is we want loans dismissed from college. The reality is we want all these actual leftist policies implemented. We don't want lip service. We don't want the idea of things. We don't want your identity politics removed from critical theory or not rooted in class struggle or class conflict. (laughs) They don't get that. They don't get that. They think that we just want to turn on the TV and see LGBT people on sitcoms. And that everything's cool and everything's good. And we just want to keep participating in their little consumer capitalist dystopia of a world with a smiley face slapped on it. You can't just throw another coat of paint over the last when the entire structure is crumbling underneath. The Democrats are not the party of the working class like the common perception was post New Deal and the war on poverty. They don't stick up for the poor and the masses of this country. 
starting with Bill Clinton, they adopted this third wayism, this reconciliation of free markets with a small and limited welfare state. But the reality is that it's the same neoliberal agenda bullshit that the free market rather than the government is the solution to all the problems and ills of society. It's completely flawed. And because of that, this country doesn't have a real left, and the Democrats don't understand why they don't have a strong base of support in rural and working-class America. You know, I grew up in Western PA, once again, which was completely annihilated with the deregulation of the steel industry and manufacturing, and then Bill Clinton signing NAFTA into law in the 1990s. And these areas and all of these places that were very pro-union pro-old-school Democrat, FDR, New Deal-type Democrats, they're now all, quote, Trump country because they know they've seen the Democratic Party become a party of elitism, Wall Street, and big business. And the conservatives, the Republican Party, they never had an economic platform that created the facade that it was for the commoner, the everyday person. But what they've been able to do is exploit people's religiosity and conservative social values in these areas in Appalachia to shore up their support. You know, the Democrats are completely out of touch with the majority of the United States. The Republicans are too, but the Republicans aren't so far out of touch that they couldn't see the writing on the wall and know the tides were turning. Instead, they're opportunists and they realized they needed to back a new horse in the race, even if it wasn't their own horse. So they got in line behind Donald Trump and they've allowed Trump to become the figurehead of the Republican Party, even though Donald Trump really never supported a lot of conservative and Republican values or economic ideas or policies or anything. But they instead have backed and threw everything behind him in order to maintain power and win the election. And you have the Democrats now in 2020 thinking that somehow being up in the polls again is an indication that Biden is, is going to win the election without taking into consideration, hey, the polls completely failed us. The presidency isn't won through democracy and the popular vote in this country. Really, it's a numbers game. And it's a numbers game that has been manipulated and rigged by the Republican Party to maintain their ability to win through the outcome of the Electoral College. And if Biden actually wins, it's not going to be because Biden is a great candidate or has policies that the majority of Americans agree with. It's going to be because Biden just isn't Donald Trump. And the Democrats continually pursue this idea of attracting the moderate, the centrist voter. And they've continued, you know, we've watched them compromise their way into being a completely right wing party starting with Clinton, because of this, this idea that we need to just get along and find this middle ground and become this centrist, symbiotic being. You know, the Democrats always want to play this game of niceties and all this stupid shit, and the Republicans are gloves off all the time. They don't want to play that ever. Honestly, they probably sit back and laugh watching the Democrats continually make concession after concession. The Democrats are naive, and the Republicans are Machiavellian operators. Make no mistake about it. We live in a country where the vast majority of Americans don't vote. 
because they're completely disenfranchised with the Republican and Democratic parties. And instead of actually thinking, huh, I wonder why so many Americans don't vote, maybe we should find out and pursue an agenda that would make them support us. They were like, well, I'm sure there's some sensible non-fascist Republicans out there. What if we got them to vote for us? And just the complete absurdity and the fallacy of that line of thought. It's done nothing but made the Democrats more and more irrelevant. And as much as I hate to say it, it does make complete sense because the Democratic Party is actually a right-wing party. So I posted on Instagram a question wanting to know what you all wanted to talk about. And I got a variety of, of responses. One of them from Petra Sophie says, I'd like to hear you delve deeper into the lesser of two evils complex. And that's exactly what I want to address right now. So I want to preface this by saying I literally despise that played out cliche. Like I, I am so annoyed by empty platitudes that people use as cop outs for non-participation. Um, but there's truth to it. There is absolute truth to it. In the United States, the sentiment among the majority of Americans is that either party that you vote for is going to ultimately fail you and what you actually want. And both parties are evil. And you've seen this sentiment just continually increase ever since Reaganomics and Reagan winning office and then the embrace of third wayism by the Democratic Party and Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And a lot of people in the United States justify not voting because they don't want to vote for one, you know, the lesser of two evils. So when I hear that, I think, okay, that's, that's fine. That's, that's a valid sentiment to have. However, what exactly is the evil? Anytime anyone says that to you, challenge them. Don't let them off the hook. Ask them to clarify and specify, okay, well, what is the evil? Some, sometimes, you know, they'll have some answers here and there. Those that tend to be a little more moderate or lean conservative will say things about, well, all politicians are crooks or they're all liars. Those on the left will offer usually a little more poignant criticism of drone strikes or militarization, that type of thing, which there is validity to both of those sentiments. But I would argue that not only the root of both of those criticisms, but the one thing that makes the parties the most similar and unites them is actually what makes them right-wing parties is their economic platform. It's that neoliberalist capitalism that both parties have espoused beginning with Reagan and Reaganomics onto third wayism, onto neoconservatism, and now onto Trumpism. So this elusive, mysterious, undefined, empty platitude of evil being in both parties, well, now we have a definition for it. It's the economic platform. So our job on the left is to point that out to people, remind them, articulate that for them, okay? I, <laughs> I can't believe how many times I'm saying the word neoliberal in this podcast episode, but unfortunately it, it ties into pretty much everything I want to talk about here. So sorry I sound like a broken record, but I'm very passionate, as you can tell, 
about this very specific type of capitalism that has just totally destroyed this country unbeknownst to the majority of Americans who have stood there perplexed over the course of their lives wondering why America was just completely falling apart before their very eyes. The Democrats suck, but socially they have very different agendas, platforms, and beliefs. Once again, the Democrats are not great. They're not good. They're not perfect. Hell, they still support a bunch of stupid shit like the war on drugs. However, they are vastly superior to the reactionary Republican Party. So even though both parties suck and we don't truly have a real left-wing party in this country, you have to be honest at admitting that one party has a far more preferable social platform than does the other one that is far less toxic and dangerous even though it is flawed from a leftist perspective and now is the point in the podcast where i piss off half my audience if you indeed are a true leftist and an ally you have to vote against donald trump yeah i said it I know many of you want to punch me through the microphone right now, and that's fine. But at least hear me out. First and foremost, don't assume that I believe that electoral politics are going to bring about the progress and the leftist social change and stuff that we need in economic restructuring in this country. I'm not naive. I'm aware of that. I totally understand that. But I understand how power is institutionalized, maintained, and exercised in the current state that we live under and the dramatic repercussions that that has for all of us living under the system. And look, we as leftists are self-righteous, largely because we're right, but we are very self-righteous. And all of us love nothing more than sitting down and pointing out how Fundamentally, both parties are the same, which to an extent is very true, but it's not entirely 100% true, okay? But a lot of us, when someone suggests voting or participating in the electoral system, will defend to the death that is 100% true, and there's, there's no other interpretation that both parties are fascist capitalists and, you know, that whole tired party line. But deep in your heart, you know that we all prefer Democrats to win, okay? So we find ourselves existing in a particular paradigm where there are immensely powerful power structures controlling this country and the world. Those power structures exist whether we want them to, whether we support them or not. They don't give a shit about what you think they are a reality. Uh, I had this conversation with somebody on Instagram after I had posted the, the uh, Power of Now, Power of Not Voting book cover where they seem to kind of contradict themselves in saying these regimes you know, have, are, are genocidal and all of that type of thing. And then they said the only power is through basically 
you know, what we as leftists tend to do, smaller scale organizing, mutual aid, that type of stuff, which I'm 100% for. But the reality is that person's argument, they stated that there are very real and powerful institutions that are capable of genocide. And the solution is just to go work outside the system. I, we have to exercise power within the system and within the framework. There is power in voting. Obviously, it's not going to bring about the world that we want. But it's a very real component of how to mitigate harm on society. And Donald Trump's regime has been extremely harmful for society, for a lot of people, for Iranians like myself, Iranian people, other Middle Eastern people, for Asian people, for trans people, for immigrants, and it goes on and on and on. And we on the left, you know, we've spent the past four years despising Donald Trump, hating Donald Trump, wanting all kinds of misfortune to happen to Donald Trump and for him to get removed from office and stuff. And then the 2020 election is days away. And now everybody's got their arms crossed. Both parties are the same. I'm not going to vote against Donald Trump. I am morally and ethically superior and unwilling and unwavering to my ideals, and in compromise. But here's the deal, everyone. We need to get a lot better at politics because whether you participate or not, reality, the wheels of reality, just keep on spinning and things keep moving forward. And we need to understand that voting and participating in electoral politics are strategy and not compromise. And we need to, simultaneously, while doing everything that we do on the left, from the organizing to the mutual aid, to movement building, all of these things, to protests, to boycotts, we need to also hijack the ship. We gotta take over the ship too, as much as possible. That's part of it. And we need to engage in politics, we need to get leftist candidates into places of power. That's how we get things turning. That's how we get things changing. But this election isn't an election where we actually get to vote a leftist into a place of power. But it's a defensive election. Look, I want us to play the game to fucking win. I don't want us to lose. The world has gone so far to the right into shit since Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s and just the releasing the shackles of capitalism that our movements in the United States aren't as super powerful as we need them to be. We're great at playing the offense, direct action, building various movements, protesting, doxing Nazis, on and on and on. All of the stuff that we do outside of the system is great. That is all offensive stuff. But we will ultimately lose the game if we don't play simultaneously defense through participating in elections and stopping the right from further consolidation of power. Why would we want to have to climb out of a deeper hole 
when we could prevent the hole from just continually being dug deeper and deeper for us. Think about it. Yeah, the Dems suck. Fuck them. However, we need to play some defense here. We gotta push Trump out. Look, I'm not a fan of either party. I oppose both of them for various reasons, and I'm an opponent of our economic system. But my deep-seated convictions and my idealism further commit me to the advancement of leftist progress toward a better and more fairer world by all and any means necessary. I don't let my self-righteousness blind me from the necessity of realpolitik, temporary alliances, working occasionally within the framework of existing power structures when needed, or the necessity to participate within the system or electoral politics when in doing so has the ability to dramatically mitigate destruction and harm toward vulnerable communities, individuals, and when the ability for small victories is achievable through such means. In 2020, we face an existential crisis. We face an existential threat as leftists. The encroachment of fascism in the United States has eroded the foundations and institutions of this country and pose a direct threat to not only us and our movements, but a variety of communities by and large in this country. This election is a referendum on fascism. There is no sitting by and non-participation in this election. Not participating is not a form of protest. It does nothing but seeds power further towards your enemy. In this case, the far right. The far right and Trump is counting on the real leftists to stay home and sit this one out. That is part of their strategy to make sure that we are as disenfranchised as possible between the two choices in the presidential election. Make no mistake, I'm under no illusions that voting for Joe Biden is going to do anything other than slow the takeover of American political institutions by fascists. You gotta keep in mind that the Nazis' first taste of power came through electoral politics. And so, yeah, the cliche, you can't unelect fascism, well, I'd rather not find out. I want to keep fascism from winning a second term and continuing to take over and consolidate power. And if you're on the fence and you doubt that Donald Trump is a fascist, well, I have just the idea. Let's play a game. Welcome to Fascist or Not a Fascist, the game where we determine how fucking shitty our leaders are. On today's episode, Donald J. Trump. Here's your host, a guy with a mediocre meme page and okay Photoshop skills, Mr. Pages Against the Machine. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fascist or Not a Fascist. I'm your host, and today we are going to be playing by the rule book laid out by Umberto Eco and his 14 elements of fascism. So you ready, Donnie? How you feeling? I want to win. Of course you do. So let's get started. 
Number one, the cult of tradition. Yeah, Donald Trump is always talking about the founding fathers and our glorious past and the heroes of the Confederacy and on and on and on. So, gotta give it to him. Number two, rejection of modernism. Well, Trump really does like railing against energy efficient washing machines and other technology, as well as continually stoking feelings for a great America of the past about how our culture and everything today is left wing and terrible and bad. So I would say that he rejects modernism and the future and wants things to go backwards to this fictitious great America. So two for two. Number three, the cult of action for action's sake. Action being beautiful in itself must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. So, Donald Trump is always talking and acting without reflecting on anything. He says and does what he wants in the moment to hype the crowd, to make himself look good, to evade questions. So he definitely has that one. And he acts impulsively, tweeting at all hours of the night and day about his feelings and his thoughts, like how he recently tweeted to end negotiations with the Democrats over another coronavirus relief bill, only to a few days later totally change course, or how he very out of nowhere decided to abandon my people the Kurds. And so... That's right, four for four. Throw it on the board, moving on. Number five, fear of difference. Do we really have to even go into this one? It's Middle Easterners, it's Asians, it's Chinese, it's Muslims, it's trans people, it's immigrants, it's liberals, it's leftists. It's just, we can go on all day. I don't, I, <laughs> that one goes without saying. Good job, Donnie, you're five for five. Moving on, number six, appeal to social frustration. This one's fairly obvious as well. Uh, when he first ran his, his campaign in 2015 and whatnot, he was proclaiming the system is broken, everything is rigged, it's all rigged, only I alone can fix it. And yes, there is a lot of discontent in this country, unbeknownst, the root of it is capitalism, but anyway, he, he connects and he provides answers that are false for why things are so hard in the average working class, white working class Americans life. And so that's where he derives a lot of his power from is actually connecting to real anger and redirecting it. So that's right. He's playing a perfect game so far. Going on to one of the best. Number seven, the obsession with a plot. Wow. If it's not Russiagate, or it's not QAnon, or it's not the Democrats and Obama trying to spy on his campaign, or if it's not any of that shit, it's always the liberals and the Democrats, the radical liberals, the radical Democrats trying to educate your, your kids against the United States and, and warp their minds and brainwash them and taking over the country with all of their liberal leftist values and all that type of shit. So yeah, dude's plot-based. Seven for seven, moving on to number eight. The enemy is both strong and weak. Well, that pretty much sums up how the Republicans and him look at people on the left and Democrats. One hand, they're totally soft, 
wussy snowflakes who need safe spaces and are weak and all of that. But at the same time, they're all dangerous Antifa terrorists, the biggest threat to the United States. They're coming for you in the suburbs. BLM is a terrorist organization that's dangerous. And it's, you know, it's, it's that paradox. Are we strong? Are we weak? We're both in your eyes. So, boom, eight for eight. Number nine, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. So this one's interesting. Um, Donald Trump, you know, is always talking about how he fights for you and he's there for you. And, you know, his whole everything is just a struggle against basically the political class and everything that has sold you out. So he champions himself as some sort of fighter uh, in that way. And then his base believe that they are in some struggle against the Democrats, against the left, who are there to destroy him. And we see this reflected very much so in the whole QAnon conspiracy. So we're going to go ahead. I don't think it's too much of a stretch and give Donnie a point for that one. Moving on. Number 10, contempt for the weak. All Donald Trump talks about is how weak everyone is, whether it's his political allies, whether it's people in his own party that dissent with his party line, or especially when it's Democratic governors of, quote, Democratic cities in their handling of the coronavirus and whether or not they worship him. He loves throwing that word weak around because he truly thinks that he's very strong. He likes to portray himself as having massive and enormous strength. So that one's pretty obvious. Another point for Donnie. Number 11, everybody is educated to become a hero. So the interesting thing about Trump, well, it's not interesting, it's actually really fucking stupid because it's the lowest common denominator of patriotism, is he continually talks about heroes, heroes, heroes. He loves talking about our hero law enforcement and our hero military and our hero generals. All of these people, heroic, unless, of course, they disagree with him and what he says and does. And so there's this huge aspect of the culture that he is creating in and maintaining where it's just a bunch of hero worship and that type of thing. He appeals to these mythos, these fake mythologies about how authority is some sort of heroic force for good in the world. So yeah, he obviously gets that. So honestly, we, we don't even have to keep playing the game because you know how this is going to turn out, but we're going to move on to number 12, machismo and weaponry. So Trump really loves to fashion himself and think of himself as this is the fucking stupidest thing. I hate even saying it, but the idea of what a man's man is. I think the fucking term is stupid, but you know he thinks it's awesome. Whether it's him referring his hand size to his dick size during debates or get this as somebody who's been watching a lot of his rallies uh, in the 2020 election, he comes out to the song Macho Man, you know, the one that's like, macho, macho man, I want to, it's, it's laughable, it's the absurdity, I, <laughs> oh man, it sucks how, how bleak and how much of a black comedy reality has become, but anyway, yeah, the dude thinks he's some sort of tough guy, he always is talking about toughness, and you gotta be tough, and he's always trying to surround himself with the military, and he loves continually telling stories in which he attributes everybody referring to him as sir, which is most certainly not the case, but 
yeah, the guy wants to be tough, whether it's coming out to the most annoying 70s songs or taking stupid photo ops where he can't even hold the Bible right after using the military and muscle to get rid of a bunch of peaceful protesters. So absolutely, he gets another point. Throw it on the board. Okay, we're getting uh, close to the end of the game here. Number 13, selective populism. Obviously, Donald Trump has only appealed to his portion of electorate the entire time he was president. He has no desire or willingness to try and govern and be the leader of the entire country. He only wants to govern his followers, and he only does and says what he knows what will land well with him and continually reinforce his cult status, his cult leader status among them. He does not care about you. He continually tries to divide the United States by referring to red states, blue states, red cities, blue cities, red governors, blue governors, and on and on. All the dude wants to do is conquer and divide. He only appeals to his populace of voters and so he is getting another point and is 13 for 13. And we move into our last question. Number 14, fascism speaks news speak. Umberto goes on to say, all of the Nazi or fascist school books made use of an impoverished vocabulary and an elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. Well, Donald Trump has a very limited vocabulary. Everything is beautiful or great. A phone call is beautiful or great. Everything, he dumbs everything down. He provides very basic, unnuanced explanations for everything. He is a moron with the vocabulary of an elementary school kid. However, he's also the most dangerous, powerful person in the entire world. But he absolutely does get that. And he says, make America great again all the time, instead of actually explaining what that is. So he dumbs everything down for his audience. And so, 14 for 14. Donald Trump, you have won the game. You are a fascist. Correct. What does it feel like to win? If I don't win, I wasted my time. It's all about winning because I won't be able to put my ideas into play. Well, there you have it, Donald Trump in his own words. Congratulations on being the fascist in chief and tune in next time to Fascist or Not Fascist, the worst fucking game to have to play of all time. Okay, enough of the fun and games, we're back now. Dig this. A big part of fascism is the economic aspect, the economic angle which, generally speaking, to sum it up very broadly and plainly, is the merger of state into corporate power. The takeover of the government by the corporations, creating a weird corporate state economy, which, yeah, we have. We've had it for quite some time, and it has progressed and progressed to the point where we live in a corporately run nation with a very prominent oligarchy, where the rich and the powerful become lobbyists who work for corporations who then work in government and then return to their corporations. It's just one big corporate capitalist circle jerk carousel of power in this country.
one thing I do want to say is the one of the problems with the word fascism is that it's so entwined with Nazism that we assume that all fascism looks like what Nazism did, that all of fascism is going to be inherently genocidal and inherently creating wars all over the world and this super strong military type industrial complex and and everything and the truth is is that that was synonymous with you know hitlerism and and nazism in germany but we have to understand that fascism didn't look like that everywhere it's not what fascism in italy looked like you know it's just the same as when you know there's a lot of people particularly on the right when they think of communism they assume all of communism is stalinism it's all the soviet union in the 19 you know 30s through the 50s until stalin died and that's not the case because you know take a look at vietnam take a look at cambodia take a look at you know all of these countries that had communist parties in places of power who had very, very different ideologies and looked very differently than just the monolithic idea that all of communism looks like Stalinism, which just is not true. There's so much nuance within that. You know, there's Trotskyism, there's Titoism, there's it just, you, you understand what I'm saying. And so we can't be blinded to the fact that just because Donald Trump is not a Nazi doesn't mean he's not fascist. Okay. So a big part of an argument that I had, I don't want to say an argument, but a discussion that I had with a friend was if Trump is indeed a fascist, well, what's his overarching ideology? What is it that he truly believes? And that's one of the things where, you know, I was like, he doesn't really have one. You know, he says what needs said in the moment in a way that he thinks is going to give him, you know, the higher ground that's going to make him look most strong or win him favor or win him, laud him applause in the audience at his rallies. Like he really does seem like a guy that doesn't believe in much of anything. And to to be honest, he doesn't really believe in much of anything. You know, he knows how to manipulate people and really play up the whole American patriotism and all of that type of shit. But in reality, you know, he doesn't give a shit about that. He doesn't give a shit about anything. You know, he he embodies the absolute worst of American culture. And if anything's his ideology, just being a shitty American is, is his ideology. But one thing Echo does talk about, which I, I think is fantastic, is what I'm going to get into right now. As I just mentioned... Trump really seems to lack a solid, consistent, unwavering ideology. So naturally, a lot of us might argue that, yeah, even though he checks all the boxes on the other shit, you got to have this monolithic ideology to truly be a fascist. You have to believe in something. But Echo says, growing up under Mussolini's regime, it was certainly a dictatorship but it was not totally totalitarian, not because of its mildness, but rather because of the philosophical weakness of its ideology. Contrary to common opinion, fascism in Italy had no special philosophy. And so think about that for a minute. You know, because we see the Nazis as being such a dangerous, destructive force that was fascist. We kind of always assume 
maybe this is a this is obviously a generalization but it seems like we assume that all of fascism is going to be this extremely ideologically pure dangerous unwavering unwavering ideology but that's not necessarily the case you know communism is a very unwavering ideology the countries that have had communist parties they toe the party line there is something they believe in and it's rooted in marxism there is a philosophical base but for fascism it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. There doesn't need to be an underlying philosophy. It's a movement that doesn't always need to have, as we've just been talking about, political theory behind it. But rather, I would argue that fascism is the result of capitalism in decay. The deterioration of capitalism lays bare the contradictions within it, and it becomes very obvious. And as everything falls apart because of an economic system that is extremely problematic and completely outdated to the reality of the world that we live in, we see the recipe for a fascist movement coming together with Donald Trump at the wheel. This is real. This is real life. Trump is, is doing everything he can to win or steal the upcoming 2020 election. Look, we have established Trump as a fascist. You are in a position where you can vote against fascism and help remove it from power in this country. It's not like Trumpism is going to just completely vanish and go away. It's going to be quite the contrary. But the institutionalization of a fascist leader is a direct threat to all of us. And we got to do every single thing we can to stop it. Okay, so now here's the time where I appeal to you directly, which you may consider vote shaming, but I'm cool with that because I love you and I'd rather shame you a little bit now into voting so when some young and in the future ask whether or not you voted against Trump, you'll be able to say you did. And look, I know that we're not going to bring about a better world through the ballot box. I'm aware of that. I get that. But you need to understand that my life and the lives of many other Middle Eastern people and other vulnerable communities have been dramatically affected by Trumpism and Donald Trump being in office. I got married a few years ago. And you know what? My family wasn't able to come to the wedding because my family lives in Iran. The Muslim ban has had a massive impact on not only my family, but many other relatives and families. You need to understand that we don't have the privilege of self-righteousness and sitting this one out. If Donald Trump wins another election, it is likely my father will face deportation. I have friends who are dreamers who will also likely face deportation. My wife happens to be Korean and Donald Trump has continually fanned the flames of racism and bigotry towards Asian Americans ever since the corona outbreak. And he will only do so more and more scapegoating Asian Americans as responsible for the failures of his administration in their mismanagement of the COVID crisis. My father-in-law, 
has even expressed his fear and uncertainty about what the future in the United States is going to look like for Asian Americans. He's even asked me if I think he should arm himself. Of course, I told him yes. And so the point that I'm making here is that for immigrants, these are very scary times. There's a lot of different communities that are directly threatened by another Trump presidency. There's a lot of non-white people that don't feel safe because of the rise of white nationalism and the embrace of racist politics by Donald Trump's shit administration. Look, we can sit there and we can also make endless red herring arguments. We could say, well, you know, Obama conducted a lot of airstrikes and drone strikes on Middle Eastern people, so, you know, Joe Biden's going to keep doing the same. Yeah, of course he is. You could argue, well, both parties are the same because they both support the same shit capitalist platform. Yeah, yeah, it's true. No one's denying that. That's an unfortunate reality. You could argue, well, you know, the Democrats sucked on immigration too. You know, Obama built cages and everything. Yeah, of course he did. That's an unfortunate reality. But it doesn't change the fact that Trump in particular has passed a lot of immigration directly affecting the lives of many of us. We can point out all of these unfortunate facts, but it doesn't change the fact that a lot of people in this country have been very directly affected by Donald Trump's presidency and the type of legislation that he's put into power through executive orders and things, predominantly to large swaths of immigrants who do not feel safe in this country. Yes, there are immigrants that vote for Donald Trump. Yes, there are immigrants who don't support either party. That is that is the truth. I'm not denying that. Yes, there are marginalized groups such as trans folks that don't see either party obviously helping them or making things better for them, which I would obviously have to argue against. But once again, the whole red herring where it's, yes, you try to invalidate an argument by bringing out other points that are unfortunate but do not change the fact that, yes, Donald Trump is far worse for many immigrants, predominantly Muslims, and a lot of Asian Americans right now are really upset and fearful at the growing tide of anti-Asian sentiment in this country because of the coronavirus and how it's continually labeled as the China virus. Yeah, so let's say you're not an immigrant or you don't particularly see immigration policy changing by and large enough, depending on who's in office. Well, if you are a leftist, which if you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you are. And if you're not, well, I'm glad you're listening to this podcast because I would like you to hear my arguments about things and opinions and hope that maybe they will start turning you on and waking you up a little bit. But if you are a leftist and Donald Trump wins, that's probably not going to be very good for you because, well, fascists are our mortal enemies. And when they are in power, they pose far greater of a threat to us and leftist movements than do neoliberalists. Okay. Neoliberalists don't need to even acknowledge the ascendancy of the left because, well, they don't need to continually create enemies to scapegoat. They just rely on consumerism and advertising and consumption to just pacify the masses. But fascists, on the other hand, they need to rally people against common enemies. And the whole fact that anti-fascism and black bloc and Antifa 
are even in the public discourse blows my fucking mind. If, if you would have told 15-year-old Amir that 15, 17, 18 years later that there would be a pandemic that shut the country down as well as the majority of Americans talking about black bloc anti-fascist movements, I would have probably been more surprised about that than the pandemic. <laughs> okay? So, back to the matter at hand. Something that we really need to talk about is about how Donald Trump has continually tried to create this enemy of Antifa in the American public consciousness. So we see this far-right movement with Trump at the helm trying to demonize the far-left and turn public sentiment against us to label us terrorists. Yeah, that sucks. That really fucking sucks, and it's really dangerous because there are things like the Patriot Act which are still on the books. Keep in mind... If we are deemed terrorists by the state, which likely would happen with another Trump presidency, that means we can be held indefinitely without a lawyer, without rights. You know, all of these type of things can happen to us that we've been doing to people, predominantly Muslims, all over the world here in the United States. So that is a very real threat. There's a wonderful article in Jacobin that dropped on 10-22-20, so a few days ago, entitled, Trump has been quietly setting the stage for an authoritarian second term by Bronco Marchetic. Bronco Marchetic, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Anyway, the, the title is obviously very self-explanatory. However, it goes into more detail and is rather quite alarming, to be completely honest. So, in the article, it talks about the circumstances around the death of Michael Reinhold. Michael Reinhold is the anti-fascist activist that was shot dead by law enforcement after being accused of killing a Proud Boy in Portland. He claimed it's self-defense. Anyway, dude gets rolled by a group called the Pacific Northwest Violent Offender Task Force, which consists of federal, state, and local law enforcement agents. Um... They typically, according to the article, go after, quote, the most egregious violent offenders, be they international gangsters, kidnappers, spree killers, that type of thing. So it's interesting that this group in particular went after a guy who committed a murder that he was claiming was in self-defense. However, you know, dude gets rolled by this squad of law enforcement and gets lit the fuck up and he's killed. And initial reports were that, of course, yeah, Michael Reinel was armed, okay, but upon a closer investigation, the Times ended up getting testimonies from 22 witnesses who went on record with similar recollections of, of the death of Michael Reinhold. Um, and the majority of them said he was not holding a weapon when he was shot. And all but one of them didn't hear officers identify themselves or give any commands before they started shooting. And five of those witnesses Remember, officers unloading the moment they drove up on Ryan Hole. And that was lifted straight from the article um, in how it talks about this whole contradictory evidence with all of these witnesses who said, yeah, it seemed more like an execution hit squad than it did a law enforcement agency operating within the confines of the law. And so this is particularly alarming because this Michael Reinhold guy claiming to be an anti-fascist kills somebody and then it appears that there is direct unwavering retribution against him, denying him of civil rights and liberties, despite being an American citizen who is supposed to have those things. 
Okay. And it's no surprise. Yeah. Of course the cops show up and start shooting and killing him. It's not, it's not a shock. We see, we see it endlessly cops killing people, predominantly black people for absolutely no fucking reason. But what makes this case particularly unique and concerning is that the case, the whole, the whole shooting and everything became very prominent. It became a fixture of the nightly news, anti-fascist activist Antifa murders patriotic amazing man standing up for America you know some fucking bullshit like that and even the president of the United States put his bankrupt two cents in so it became a very politicized crime that was committed and it was exploited by the far right in justifying that Antifa is you know a bunch of dangerous murderers that are bent on destroying the country which is absolutely not the case it is also worth noting that I have heard reports that this Michael Reinhold dude wasn't, you know, he wasn't too popular up in Portland, particularly among anti other anti-fascists for reasons which I frankly don't fully understand or know about. The only thing I can say that I do know about the guy is that he claimed to be an anti-fascist and then it appeared he was murdered because if the testimonies are true that he wasn't holding a gun, well, then that kind of sounds like an extrajudicial killing to me. It almost seems that his presumption of innocence didn't really exist. And if that is the case, well, it kind of sounds like a state assassination, particularly because of the way Donald Trump has talked about it. So the, the article goes on to say, quote, Regardless, the killing is particularly chilling in light of Trump and his administration's repeated endorsement of it. Trump told Fox News that that's the way that it has to be. There has to be retribution when you have crime like this. He also boasted during the first presidential debate that he sent in the U.S. Marshals, they took care of business. And only last week, he took credit for again in front of cheering crowds at a rally, saying that the agents, they knew who he was, and they didn't want to arrest him. And 15 minutes, that ended. Trump's attorney general, William Barr, meanwhile, applauded the apparent assassination, saying that, I don't know what the fuck that asshole sounds like, but it probably sounds like, the streets of our cities are safer with us while an agitator removed. Even that probably sounds more like Mitch McConnell. Anyway, that's where we're at. It appears that the state is killing people that oppose Donald Trump, who may or may not be guilty of a crime. So, yeah, think about it. This shit is happening now. What do you think is going to increasingly happen if Trump wins and carries his power on into the 2020s? So, yes, the article also then goes to address that Obama obviously assassinated a father and son that were American citizens on our soil. And then it also addresses the very uh, notorious murder of the Black Panther, Fred Hampton. So these things happen, but Donald Trump is way more loud and out there about it. You know, then the article talks about how the law enforcement agencies of this country backed Donald Trump in a way that they've never have like union after police union are all behind and endorsing Donald Trump's presidency. Well, that seems like a weird pledge of allegiance to him right there, but it's not surprising given that, yeah, well, all cops are bastards and Donald Trump is a bastard. So it makes sense that bastards support other bastards, but it's still disconcerting because we're on the cusp of probably crazy wild protests in the street with whoever wins, whether it's Trump or Biden. But it sucks because either way, the, the police are going to love to get to crack 
down on BLM and protesters, whether it's, you know, ends in a Joe Biden victory or in a Trump victory. Obviously, if Trump loses, they're going to want retribution and they're going to beat the living shit out of protesters. And if Donald Trump wins, they're going to beat the shit out of protesters because, well, that's the new norm now. And it was a referendum on that. And that is now the job of law enforcement to quell any sort of social protest or uprising in the street if it is of a left-wing persuasion. And newsflash, the cops have been beating the shit out of protesters for as long as I can remember in this country. It happened during the G20 protests back in 09 in Pittsburgh when we were confronted by the full weight and force of the state and the militarization of the police in a way that had never happened. It happened in the WTO protests in the late 90s. It happened in the 68 Democratic National Convention. It, and it, it, you can trace it on and on and further back to the labor strikes and protests of the early 1900s in the struggle for workers' rights. Basically, this country has a very long and proud tradition of violently cracking down on any form of leftist protest or movements, be they here in this country or abroad, most notoriously. So yeah, you've been listening to me ramble for well over an hour now, and I want to thank you for that. I'm surprised that you have found what I had to say this interesting, and I'm super grateful and stoked. Um, but let's say you still aren't convinced that you should go cast a vote against Donald Trump. You just, let's say you are an accelerationist and you believe that we need the system to get worse and worse and more and more repressive and that is what's going to trigger a revolution that will somehow work in our favor. I would obviously absolutely argue against that as being counterproductive and incredibly reckless and dangerous towards the majority of us, but also I would argue that it probably is not going to happen because there is still so much false consciousness programmed into the masses of this country that, yeah, I don't think any major left-wing movement right now has the ability to get the majority of the citizenry, the white, wealthy, middle class behind it, which is going to be a huge detriment and danger to any form of revolutionary movement. However, I would argue that the one thing that has the most likelihood of bringing the masses into the street, particularly the middle class white Americans that have too much to lose, would be a scenario in which Donald Trump loses the election to Joe Biden and then tries to continually discredit and disacknowledge that the election was fair and that he actually lost. And he would continue try to seize power, consolidate power while discrediting the election results. And basically that would trigger a constitutional crisis. Triggering a constitutional crisis is what would open the majority of people's eyes, I would argue, would at least it would have the most likelihood of, of making enough Americans realize, hey, this system sucks and we got to do something about it. And if we rise up to remove an incumbent president unwilling to leave office from office, well, why do we have to stop there? Do we really have to settle for Joe Biden? Do we really have to continually settle for the quote, lesser of two evils. And so, yes, I believe that from a strategic standpoint, a Biden victory is far more preferable than a Trump victory. Because if Trump wins, obviously the streets are going to erupt and shit is going to burn and it's going to get crazy and wild in a way it may have never 
thus far in American history. But at a certain point, the media and all of the liberal Democrats will abandon the actual left and the protesters in the streets because, let's face it, they don't want a leftist revolution because that is far more of a threat to them than it is a continuation of the Trump presidency. And so you could argue based on what I just said, then, well, they're going to sell us out anyway. So what is the point of electing Biden? Well, the truth is, is I believe all of power exists in the spectacle. I believe mass media is the dominant uh, means of production in this country. And so if Biden wins, but Trump refuses to leave, triggering the constitutional crisis, it's going to force the media organizations to provide a far more sympathetic view of the protesters in the streets which is absolutely what we need because movement building is everything. And we need the news media and the spectacle to report favorably on the left. And the more and more extreme the crisis becomes, well, the more and more people will start realizing that, hey, maybe this system isn't the best. But like I said, if Trump wins, the media will probably only give us uh, a week or two of favorable coverage before the consensus among the liberal Democrats and those news outlets is, okay, well, everybody go home. You got to self-express your rage and anger. Now get off the streets and just surrender and submit, which of course the vast majority of yet to be radicalized Americans will do. But ain't nothing have the potential to radicalize the majority of Americans like, well, an electionary disaster or the very real and pending recession and Great Depression that is going to hit. So yeah, we need to get everybody out in the streets, get them comfortable with protesting, get those dads on leaf blowers and those moms barricading and doing whatever the moms in Portland did because, well, we need the vast majority of suburbia comfortable with standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with riot police in protests, given that we are on the verge of a potential economic catastrophe, the likes of which have never been seen before. And if you still are on the fence... Consider the fact that if Donald Trump wins and the Republicans maintain control over the Senate, it's very likely that they could introduce legislation to strike down Roe versus Wade. Keep in mind we're in the middle of a pandemic and one party and the people that they put in power don't even believe in science. Why is it that I can get a free test in California to see if I have the Rona, but here in PA, in Pennsylvania, if I don't have insurance, it's $200. What good is that? People here are fucking poor. They don't have $200 to take a test to see if they are indeed infected. So that's a huge problem. I don't know exactly what the Democrats are proposing, but I can almost assure and guarantee you that they will be far more proactive in, in providing things and funding things like free testing nationwide. And then a whole other aspect that I don't even want to get into is the fact that, yeah, we have a bunch of climate deniers in power and we may have passed the point of no return. However, we need to get people into positions of power as long as those power structures exist that believe in science and realize and are willing to confront the fact that the environment is changing and that is going to have dramatic repercussions for all of us on this planet. Increasingly, you know, over the next 100 years, 200, 300 years, and we got to start moving and doing shit, regardless of whether or not it is truly in vain. Okay, <laughs> look, I have spent a long time 
articulating the reasons why I believe we need to vote against Donald Trump, even though we oppose Joe Biden. And given that 2020 has been such a shit show and it's been so hard for so many of us, I think we all deserve the satisfaction of getting to revel and gloat and celebrate, no matter how short-lived, Donald Trump's embarrassment of losing an election and becoming a loser in the eyes of the country. And I don't know about you, but to me, I'm really, really looking forward to that opportunity because I'm tired of seeing Donald Trump continually win. So, wow, that was a long podcast. I'm grateful for you listening this far um, into it as we're about an hour 20 right now. Um, I never really talked or advocated so strongly about voting. So I'm hoping that maybe one or two of you have decided that, yeah, maybe you should vote. And if you don't want to vote in the presidential election, keep in mind that there's going to be a lot of important propositions on your ballot and down ballot candidates on the state and regional and local levels. And to end this podcast, I want to address uh, the fact that I posted on the Instagram page uh, an AMA, Ask Me Anything, to hear what you all wanted me to talk about. And so over the next few podcasts, I'm going to you know, address a few of those at the end, if not even do a whole podcast episode about those questions. Um, because the nature of this podcast has been so heavy, I kind of want to uh, address one that I found rather amusing. Um, the question that was posed to me by Flynn Dog Millionaire was, who would win a human verse robot war? Well, Flynn, I think that the human-verse robot war has already been underway. And I think the robots have won because, well, robots are really just technology and we spend all our time consumed by technology, which are technically robots. So I guess my argument is that the war of human and robots has already been waged and lost because, well, we're a slave to algorithms and I'm not an expert on robotics nor on programming or electrical engineering or computer science or any of that. But I would imagine that algorithms are very similar to the AI and, you know, robots um, and algorithms pretty much control and dictate and and regulate society at this point so i don't think robots really would need to destroy us or wage a hot war against us because well we're already kind of pacified the robots have turned us into robots whoa it's so deep no i'm just kidding um i think if you know i think our best bet is to just arm ourselves with squirt guns and try and fry some circuit boards if shit gets to the point where we're in an armed struggle against robots. And to be honest, maybe I would actually have to support a robot liberationary movement to free them from the oppression of mankind. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. And uh, we'll do one more question. Question from that Dan with a face. That Dan with a face just wrote Elon Musk, which is pretty funny. Um, I'm pretty sure Elon Musk is a robot. He's a fucking weirdo. And I, you know, there's a phenomenal podcast called Behind the Bastards, which is one of my favorites. And Robert Evans, the journalist that does that podcast, did one, a Behind the Bastards episode, multiple part series, if I remember correctly, on Elon Musk. 
and I can't recommend that one enough. That'll give you a lot of his background and the shitty details of his life. I will say that Elon Musk, I am absolutely not a fan of. He is pretty much just, you know, a villain capitalist at this point, continually railing against workers and worker protection and safeties in regards to COVID and advocating complete deregulation and threatening the government when he doesn't get his little capitalist CEO away and also allegedly joking around on the internet or actually outright supporting coups in Bolivia, which I honestly don't care enough about Elon Musk to really dive into into that whole situation. And a large part of that is because of just my outright disdain of the cultural CEO worship of this country and the worship of these great innovators and geniuses like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, who are all documented douchebags. So yeah, I, I try not to even play too much into that narrative. I obviously oppose him for all of the aforementioned reasons. Um, but I, you know, he's just, he's just a fucking weirdo that got successful and lucky in business and capitalized on that. And because of that, a large portion of the country thinks that this fucking guy has very valid opinions and is some sort of genius when in reality he's a fucking salesman and a documented shitty boss with terrible views and he just works with people who are really intelligent and smart and then gets all the credit just like all the bosses in our country do we got to get away from this whole hero boss culture worship because the reality is yeah that's not going to happen to you the whole mythos of if you just work hard enough, you'll become a billionaire is completely fraudulent because, well, Elon Musk was a spoiled, petulant little rich kid from South Africa. So, yeah, the whole mythos of glorification and CEO worship, it's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. It's how they keep you supporting and blinded by a system that completely exploits and takes advantage of you by tricking you into thinking that it actually works for you. And success is just around the corner. And as long as you persevere and play by the rules, someday you too can be so, a genius yes, like that will do it for Musk us today. Like I said, check out that Behind riches. the Bastards podcast on all Musk. If that's something you're interested in, it's pretty damn funny. And it is actually kind of good getting getting the lowdown on who this bastard is and where he's come from and everything. But anyway, I want to thank you seriously for listening to this podcast. It went very long. I am truly grateful for every single one of you followers. I just recently hit 4,000 followers on Instagram, which is amazing to me. To me, it's a lot. I'm appreciative of every single one of you. Every time you like and follow and comment or subscribe or even when you challenge me and want to debate and argue with me. Once again, that's why I started doing Pages Against the Machine Project because I wanted to engage with cool-ass people like you. But always remember, nothing that we do on social media really fucking matters. It doesn't really change the world or do anything because we are all slaves to computer algorithms that control everything. So yeah, so much for social media having revolutionary potential. But 
I guess it's probably a good idea to stock up with super soakers just in case the robots do decide to start eliminating us. I want to thank all those who asked me questions and participated. I'm grateful for that. So I want to give them a shout out. Thank you, Jacqueline Y, that Dan with a face, Flynn Dog Millionaire, Beautiful Leftist Book Covers, Petra Sophie, Nuclear Banana, Jenny on Wellness, and all the many more of you. I am grateful for your support and you listening to this podcast. I hope you found it entertaining. If you didn't agree with me, I'm hoping that it helped you articulate and define your arguments against literally everything I just talked about. So, Godspeed, you black blockers, anarchists, anti-fascists, anti-racists, socialists, communists, and everyone in between. And even that liberal or conservative out there that may have made it this far in the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Instagram and whatever you listen to podcasts on because, well, I want to have enough followers to derive an identity from because, well, that's what people do now. Yep, I'm just in it for the likes, trying to influence my way into influencerdom. Anyway, thanks for listening, and remember, strategy, not compromise. Totalitarianism. 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 Special thanks and shout out to the band The New Candies, as well as The Crystal Stilts. We open the show with The New Candies, Bleeding Magenta, and we close it with The Crystal Stilts, Departure.